you know, books. I've written a lot of books, <clears throat> and some of them are readable. <clears throat> but they're like your children. And they, you let them loose in the world, and they show up all over the place. And some of them make enemies, and others make friends. So I'm delighted to see that Luke's have made friends at this point. But it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, as you can tell, I'm not from East Texas. <laughs> I'm from the south of the north of Ireland. And if you get me really cross, my Irish accent will become even stronger than what it is now. <laughs> but uh, I've known Luke for quite a while now, and we're just, we really are extraordinarily good friends. And it's a great pleasure to be invited to preach and teach here. So let's just have a quick word of prayer. Father, we pray that you will take our minds and think through them. And that you will take my lips and speak through them. And above all, that you will take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for our neighbor. Amen. Now, I don't feel I need to preach because it's all been taken care of in the singing and this extraordinary reading of the book of Habakkuk. So I'm going to give you three verses out of the book of Habakkuk, and then I'll talk about the book of Habakkuk, and then I'll finish. But the three verses are magnificent ones. The one from chapter 2, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so that he may run who reads. It's a wonderful expression. For still the vision awaits its appointed, uh, and it hastens to the end. It will not lie. And if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. And the righteous shall live by faith. That verse is dynamite in the history of the church. And then 2.14. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. Now, wouldn't it be fabulous to see that happen? And then the last one, I just read it again, though the fig tree shall not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, and the, uh, the flock be out, be cut from the field, so that there's no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Now I pick out those three verses, or those three sections, because this is a miserable book. So if you want to join the Russians and the Irish and be miserable, this is the book to read. Now, all the prophets, as you know, are appointed by God to go and speak to the people on behalf of God. That's one of the reasons why we have all this material, because we want to know what God thinks. And so God appoints certain people to hear his word and then deliver it to us. But in this case, what we have is someone who's a prophet who talks to God. Now, I've been reading the prophets over the last several months because a year ago I decided we were in a mess. It wasn't just Ireland was in a mess, Europe is in a mess, America's in a mess, the whole world is in a mess. So if you want to be miserable, come and join me. 
And I came to the conviction that what I needed to do for my own soul was to actually just start reading the Scriptures from beginning to end. And so I've landed now in the book of Habakkuk, and it is an astonishing little book. And one, as I say, where Habakkuk talks to God rather than talking to the people on behalf of God. Now, when you read through the prophets, they are extraordinary in the political insight that they have. Now, in terms of academic work, nobody reads the Bible from a political point of view, except a bunch of heretics that we're not going to talk about. But there's a wonderful Jewish thinker called Yoram Hazoni, who did a degree in political theory and science at Rutgers University. And Hazoni pointed out some time ago, he says, you know, the first book that was ever really written about politics and culture was not Plato, it was not Aristotle, we know all that stuff, it was actually the book that the Jews call the Torah. The Jews call, if you like, the Hebrew Bible. After all, if in the middle of the book you've got First and Second Kings, you know that this has to say something really deep to our situation in culture and in politics, without being partisan with respect to our political commitments, the way I want to put it. Now, what I have discovered as I've been working through the prophets is that there's a certain pattern that they very clearly delineate. The children of Israel, the people of God, start out magnificently in the Promised Land. I came to the Promised Land here in America many years ago. I still hope it's the Promised Land, but I'm a regular, old-fashioned, unreconstructed immigrant. I understand why people want to come to this country. You want to come because of the opportunities, and I, for my part, at the end of my career, want to say thank you for everything that America has given me. If I had stayed in Ireland, I would have loved it, and I'd have been retired at the age of 65 and kicking up my heels, and you've made me into a workaholic, and I love it. Now, if you look at the pattern that's available in the prophets, it's a very interesting one. You start out well, and then you start forgetting. You forget about the values that, in fact, were at the core of your identity. It starts, by the way, with Solomon and his foreign policy. In the foreign policy of Solomon's day, what did you want to do? You wanted to be nice and friendly. If you're in Texas, you wanted to be friendly to the people in Oklahoma and Louisiana and out west. So what did you do? You brought in your wives from all of these places. Now, people tell me that women are not powerful. I don't believe it for one moment. What do they bring with them? They bring their pagan religions with them. And the next thing what's happening is that paganism post-Israelite theology is now beginning to get a grip of the people, and before you know what's happening, there is confusion, there is disorientation, and there's dysfunction. And that dysfunction finds itself in various expressions. People turn to sensuality for relief. The law courts don't work properly. (laughs) Nobody cares about those that are on the bottom rung of society, like the widows and the fatherless and the poor, they get shafted. People who have next to nothing are exploited by those who are rich. And as you move through that process, you get to a stage where, in fact, the core convictions, values, principles, and practices and institutions are simply beginning to fade away. And then you know what happens? There's a crisis. And guess what happens in a crisis in the Middle East? You have got empires sitting on the edge, Assyria in the north, Babylon in the south, 
and they are just waiting for you to crack. And when you crack, they walk straight in and they take over, and then you have to pay taxes through the nose. Then they will take off your best people in order to serve what they need, and you will find yourself in bondage to the people around about you. Now, I'll leave you to make that application to the wider geopolitical score in which world in which we live. And what you get in the case of Habakkuk, this extraordinary man, is that he's living in a liminal space between the destruction of the north, which had followed that pattern, the south had held out and had not followed that pattern. Indeed, there were periods in the south when there was, was moments of wonderful renewal and revival. Tragically, they did not last. But what you've got here is a situation where Habakkuk is right on the cusp of what could happen in the south given the pattern that's developed in the north. Now, what's happening is that he's watching and he's got, you know, as my mother would say, if he didn't go to school, he met the scholars coming home. And he had an eye for what was happening below the surface. No surface reading of the situation as far as he was concerned. And what he's beginning to see is that it's, it's awful. Violence is all over the place, and nobody's stopping it. The law courts are not functioning properly. Judges are being bribed. Or if you're an honest witness, you're afraid to speak up. And you have the rich exploiting the poor, and you have sensuality, you have people who are more interested in what parties they're going to and, and how, what fun they're having than in anything that has to do with the well-being of the nation. And he looks at this, and eventually he comes to God, and this is what you get, as we've seen in chapter 1. He says, look, I've had it. When are you going to do something about this? This is a mess. And I, see, I don't see any, any action on your part. I mean, look at us. We're screwed from top to bottom. We have nobody looking out for us. The system has become dysfunctional. So when are you going to step in and take care of business? We're your people. Now, God then says, okay, I'm going to act. And you get then <laughs> the response of God to all of this. Look at chapter 2. And when Habakkuk gets the answer, of course, it's going to be a pain in the brain, to put it mildly. But the answer he gets is God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take those nasty neighbors that you've got, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And by the way, they're a ruthless bunch. I mean, when they've gobbled up one country and exploited it, they just move next door and take out the next country. And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have these people walk into Judah and into Jerusalem, and they're going to exercise judgment over the people in, uh, in Judah, and, and I'm going to take care of business, and that's, that's what's on the horizon. Well, now, if you're Habakkuk, and you haven't sent your brains on a holiday, you look up at God and you say, Lord, how could you do this? I mean, those people are worse than we are. I mean, we're bad. We've got a catalog of vices and evil and misery that's being caused by the elite or whoever. We've got a catalog of misery 
And those people are worse than we are. And what are you going to do? You're going to have those people march in and take over. And he says, what, what are we going to do about this? I can't understand this. Now, if you want to be a theologian, there are two big issues. This is for the teenagers in their midst, in my midst, who are going to be theologians. There are two big issues that will give you a pain in the brain at this point. One is that the God of Israel is the God of all nations. Now, you and I are bombarded with uh, media. I love the media as much as you do. I'm saturated in it. And what we know is there are these great geopolitical powers. You've got China, you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got the United States, on and on and on. And then you have the little minnows like Ireland and Romania and, you know, the backwaters of the world that nobody cares about. And we think, okay, the world is basically run by these superpowers. But here's a pain in the brain for you teenagers. How does God rule the nations of the world? That's an amazing claim. And it's one the prophets are absolutely clear about. And they know it because God told them. And they know it because what God did in Israel is confirmed by their history. And they know it because, in fact, when they follow out the divine revelation that's given in the Scriptures, they realize God is not just the God of Israel. Indeed, He is in a very special way. He's the God of all of the nations. If you want to have a pain in the brain, as I say. Then figure out how God works through the nations. I haven't written anything on that yet, but who knows, before I die, I may tackle that problem. But I have another problem I want to give to the teenagers. Here is a situation where you have a rampant evil in Israel. And what does God do in response to it? Now, he acts in judgment. And he acts in judgment if you like, in order to bring about transformation and change and fix it, right? So what does God do? He uses people who are evil to achieve his good purposes. Now, if that doesn't make your hair stand on end, let me help you. You remember the story of Joseph, brilliantly, by the way, articulated in the story of Joseph. And Joseph is in a situation where his brothers, you know, they don't like him. He's daddy's pet. He's got some, you know, fancy uniform. And uh, they sort of, he, he visits them. You know the story. He visits them and they say, you know, we can take this little upstart and take care of business here. Why don't we kill him? And we'll go home and tell father that he was eaten by the wild animals. And then somebody had a grand idea, why don't we make a few dollars off this? There's a, there's a bunch of traders coming by here, and we can sell them into slavery. And we can still sell the same cock and bull story back home when we get to father, and we'll get rid of him that way. And at the end of that book, as you know, in Genesis, when Moses is sitting at the top of the political and social and cultural ladder, he has these brothers show up, and I'll tell you, if I was him, I'd lose my religion and kill them. Now, I know you're all pious, and you wouldn't even think about doing that. And, and, he, and then he says, you know, this is the extraordinary thing. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, this is the parallel that's working in this case. God is going to take the enemy of Israel... And he's going to judge them, and he's finished with them, by the way. They're not going to get off scot-free. 
He's going to use the evil passions and propensities of the neighboring nation to judge and correct his own people, bring them back to first principles, to the core of what they are, rebuild the temple and all the rest of it. And what then is going to emerge is that God will, if you like, work in, with, and through even the evil actions and intentions of other people in order to achieve his purposes. Now, those young fellows here sitting on the front row will give you the Nobel Prize for theology when you solve that problem of how God can take what's evil and turn it around and use it for good. Let me tell you, that's a tough issue, and it's solvable, because I've solved it, but you can do your own way of doing it, right? Now, come back to the text. Now, what is Habakkuk going to do when he hears all this? Well, there's not much you can do. Because Habakkuk is going to have to suffer with the people. And he's going to have to go through this period of cleansing, of discipline, of judgment. And he's not going to have an easy ride. He is not going to be Kevin carried to heaven on a feather bed. He's going to have to actually be part of a community in which the suffering that is brought upon the people in part by their own stupidity, the S factor, was very high. He's going to have to walk his way through this suffering and come out the other end, in fact, with his head held high. And that is what is so beautiful about the last part of this text. When you get to chapter 3, and I love the way that you presented this both in song and elsewhere, I don't need to say too much about it. When you get to chapter 3, he says, Lord, please, when all this is over, please revive your work. I mean, wouldn't it be marvelous to have a third great awakening? Wouldn't it be marvelous if all our churches came into a period of repentance and self-knowledge and came into a period where we rediscovered the truth about Jesus and we were open to the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and change us? Wouldn't that be glorious if that was to happen? We don't know. But he says, Lord, please, when you're done, revive your work, and in wrath, remember mercy. And then he gives you this catalog of the story of Abraham, the story of the creation, the story of, in fact, the uh, deliverance from Egypt. And when he comes to the end of that chapter, what you find is he's just broken. He, his body is trembling because he's remembered who God really is. This is no phony deity. This is the living God, and this is a God who has acted decisively in the history of Israel and can act decisively again in the history of Israel, even though he has got to just stay the course and keep his head high and keep his faith in God intact during this period of suffering. And that's why I just again read those three texts. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by their faithfulness. That's another way to put it. And then you have this glorious text. Yes, it's a mess, but one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. By the way, that was a key text for John Wesley. That's all I'm going to say about Methodism. John Wesley loved that text, and he said, I will give my heart and my soul for that to happen. 
And in fact, he thought that the awakening that was taking place in his day and generation was the foretaste of the knowledge of the glory of God filling the earth as the waters cover the sea. You can't get much better than that. Now, we could take some time. What would it be to know the glory of God? Now, think about the glory days of SMU football. <laughs> or think about the glory days of the, of the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> All right? Or think of the glory days of Irish Christianity when we saved European civilization from darkness. <laughs> Those were days in which God moved I'm talking about the work of God, not the Dallas Cowboys at this stage. Those were the days when you could look out and you say, what has God not done? It is absolutely astonishing. And he looked forward to that day. And then the last part, before I make a few applications, the last part is this extraordinary one. No matter what happens, I may have no food on my table. My Cocker Spaniel dogs were going to die on me. Right? They're my therapy. There's going to be no cattle in the stalls. There's going to be no olive on the trees. Everything is going to be taken from me because he's going to go through this, potentially through the suffering of the people under judgment from God. And what does he say? He says, of course, that he will continue to trust in God, to rejoice in God. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And God the Lord is my strength. He makes me my feet like the deer's, and he makes me tread on high places. And let me make three comments on this, and then we'll call it a day. You know, first thing I want to say about this is that while this applies to the nation, that pattern that I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes you see it in the case of people. And it's very hard sometimes to stand by and watch. Have we not seen members of the family, have we not seen dear friends even, acquaintances, where, as I call it, the stupidity factor is so high that they sort of like, sort of walk and they cave, they engage in self-destructive behavior, and there's not a thing you can do about it. That's tough. You can warn them, you can argue with them, but you don't get anywhere. Sometimes you have to live through that. And you've got to take it on the chin during that period. I know a situation right now, I'll not give the details because I don't want to give any identity away. I know a case of a young woman, an absolutely gorgeous young woman, and she has made some really stupid decisions in terms of drugs, in terms of her sexual behavior. She is completely oblivious to argument, to reason, whatever you would bring to her, and she is heading to self-destruction. And there's a certain sense in which myself and others, we can't do a thing about it, and it's heartbreaking. That's the kind of situation that Habakkuk was in, in terms of the nation, and I think you can see it happening in the case of, 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 the, uh, of a person, individual as well. Now, the last thing I want to say, however, is that with all of that, sometimes we can't avoid the suffering of other people because we belong together and we will mourn with those who mourn and we will suffer with those who suffer because, in fact, they're not going to turn and come to God. But the, the good news is, the good news is 
that despite all of that, and despite what we may lose in that process, we can stand tall and we can stay the course. And the way we stay the course is we live by faith, we get the faith by faith, we become Christians by faith, we live by faith, and we die by faith. And we are not for sale, and we are not backing down, and we are not going to give up, and we are going to walk through whatever wilderness they may be for us until the day of God's mercy and God's grace in history and in the church falls afresh upon us, and we will see the knowledge of the glory of God fill our churches. Let's start there, as the waters cover the sea. Now, the final footnote on this. This verse, the just shall live by faith, the righteous shall live by their faithfulness, whichever way you translate it, it still works, was a key text for Martin Luther. In his table talk, he has a very interesting analogy. I'm going to try and figure out if I can work out this analogy, and then I'm going to quit. I have got two children alive. One of us, we lost one of our boys, unfortunately, when he was in his early 40s. That was a devastating experience. God took us through it. But I want to leave my children an inheritance. You know, so I'm trying to save up money here and there, because one of them is a musician. He's not going to make much money. <laughs> Don't be a musician if you want to make money. You hear that, fellas and girls? He's a brilliant trumpet player. I love hearing him play trumpet, but I don't know how he's going to make a living. But so be it. But I want to leave my children an inheritance. And you know, they get the inheritance because I will it to them. Now, I also will, you know, when they grow up, as they've grown up even now, I, they now are taking care of me and giving me all sorts of advice. You know, it's terrible when you get older, the children take over. You, you have, you have to conspire against them sometimes. You have to keep them at bay. They can interfere with your life. But, you know, when they're growing up, you know, you say, look, if you do your homework well, you know, you know we have these little rewards and we have all these ways and tricks and whatnot of getting our kids to do the best that they can all over the place. But the inheritance does not depend upon what they do. The inheritance comes by grace and by acceptance and faith. And what Luther discovered, and I, I finish with this, what Luther discovered was he didn't feel worthy before God. By the way, we have this massive problem in Romania where I currently teach from time to time. People say, I can only be, I can only be part of the church. Well, I'll be part of the church and then I'll make myself worthy because God will not love me unless I become worthy. And it's a treadmill. It's toxic. It's poisonous. It's disastrous. And what Luther discovered was the inheritance that is given to us in Jesus Christ. It is given as an inheritance by grace from top to bottom. And our way of receiving it is by self-knowledge. Grow up. Get wise unto salvation. Come to the risen Lord and come in simple, radical faith to Him and He'll get a hold of you and then He'll straighten us out and then He will take us through whatever the experiences are 
that you and I have to face on this earth. So we finish the book of Habakkuk. You know, there are times when God has to act in discipline and judgment on his people and on nations. And we may have to suffer through that as members of churches and nations. And we're not going to run away. There's no place to run, let me tell you. Don't run to Methodism. Don't run to Rome. Don't run to Eastern Orthodoxy. Stay where you are, because they are all full of problems. There are no problem-free situations in the church, let me tell you. I've been around long enough. So we may have to live through suffering. We may be heartbroken when we see the stupidity and recklessness of people around about us at the highest levels and right where we are in our families and among our friends. We may have to go through that. But that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that God has made his covenant with Israel and with his people, and he will never let go. And he will not let go of you, or he will not let go of me. And we, therefore, will lean into it. We will pray for mercy. We will ask God to revive the church. We will ask God to save the nation. And we will, we will stay the course, even though there may be nothing of substance for us as we walk into that future. So the beauty of Habakkuk is, don't you dare give up. You stay the course, because the righteous will live by their faith and by their faithfulness. And glory be to God. Amen. Amen. And I'm done.